0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the LSC. And I'm very pleased indeed to be able to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Michael Fulilove. Michael is the executive director of the Lowy Institute, a highly influential think tank based in Sydney with a special focus, I think it's fair to say, on international relations, especially in the Asia Pacific region. I think all of our fates are going to um, be affected by what happens in that region in the coming period. Well, he was a student um, both in Sydney and in Oxford, and he went on to serve as a policy advisor to Labour Prime Minister Paul Keating, and he has ongoing roles in a number of other uh, prestigious think tanks, including the Brookings Institute in Washington, the International Institute for Strategic Studies um, nearby to us here in here in London. And, uh, if you read the papers, you'll see his opinion pieces popping up regularly in all sorts of newspapers and media outlets. And I mean, I won't list them all, but you know, the New York Times, the Financial Times, the BBC, Sydney Morning Herald, and so on. Michael's also published a number of books, um, including one on great political speeches and another a prize-winning study of the Franklin Roosevelt administration on the eve and just at the beginning of the Second World War. In 2015, he was invited to deliver the ABC's Boyer Lectures, a signal honour, much like being invited to give the wreath Lectures for the BBC here in the UK. Well, Michael's going to discuss uh, the impact of the COVID crisis on on shifting international relations um, in Sydney. as I guess you can imagine, it's, it's well into the night, so we have a slightly different format to, to usual uh, today. Michael's going to speak for about 30 minutes, and then we've got 30 minutes for questions and discussion. If you want to ask a question, since we're in this remote format, please um, put it into the uh, Q&A, and then we'll select a number of those and, and pose them to Michael. But before we uh, start, can I just ask you all um, remotely to join me in welcoming our speaker? I'm the only one who can do it here. Um, but I do very much want to welcome our speaker today, Dr. Michael Fullilove. Michael.
1: Well, thank you, Robin, for that generous introduction. You said a lot of nice things about me, so I very much hope my mum has um, logged onto this call to hear you say that about me. Thank you for inviting me to give this lecture as part of the Ralph Miliband program. As you mentioned, um, I was a, uh, I did a couple of degrees at Oxford, and of course, that's where I met Robin nearly 25 years ago. I was a graduate student, having recently finished up working for Mr Keating, and uh, Robin was a politics gone. And Robin, I well remember our rolling informal seminar on Australian politics uh, at Oxford. And frankly, I was d- delighted to find someone who cared. So Robin was very important to me at that time uh, about sort of um, expressing interest in, in, in Australia. Of course, Robin maintains his interest and involvement in Australia, writes about Australian history, contributes to our national debate, even though he has lived in the United Kingdom for a long time. I'm pleased to be asked to give a lecture named after Ralph Miliband. Now, in one sense, there's little connection perhaps between a British Marxist academic and an Australian social democrat who makes his trade in foreign policy. But I know from my time in the UK that Miliband played an outsized role in British intellectual life. I admire scholars who are willing to chance their arms on current issues. I understand that Miliband was a great teacher and indeed that one of his former students established this lecture series. And uh, who wouldn't be flattered by a generous gesture like that. Um, Ralph Miliband and his wife Marion also obviously ran a good politics nursery at home producing two remarkable sons and I declare an interest Robin David Miliband is a friend of mine and someone whose work in politics and at the International Rescue Committee, I very much admire and I hope actually, speaking personally, that David will have the opportunity to make another significant contribution to British public life in the future. Today, uh, Robin, you've asked me to, to address three topics. Uh, how the virus, how COVID has affected China, how it's affected the West, and finally, relations between China and the West in the era of COVID. So let me, there are three big questions, but let me have a crack at them. First of all, let me start by talking about how China and China's international persona has been affected by the virus. It seems to me that COVID is like an X-ray. It shows up the healthy and the unhealthy parts of the body politic. And in the case of China, COVID has shown up both the strengths and the weaknesses of China's system. We don't know exactly how, where, and when the virus originated. We believe that it probably originated in China in November or December of 2019. In Lawrence Wright's article The Plague Year for the New Yorker which is the basis for a book to be published this June Wright reports several phone calls between Robert Redfield the director of the US Center Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with George Fu Gao his counterpart in China He reports that on the 3rd of, China, of January Gao told Redfield that they had come across an unidentified virus but that there was no evidence of human to human transmission On another call, a few days later, Gao began to cry and said, I think we're too late. And indeed, they were too late. On the 23rd of January, China declared a lockdown in Wuhan. My Lowy Institute colleague Richard McGregor has written about how the central government may have delayed declaring this lockdown in order to proceed with President Xi Jinping's scheduled visit to Myanmar later that month. The lockdown was declared the day after Xi returned to Beijing, but by then, the virus had already spread to a number of other countries. And Richard has argued that this is emblematic of a total system failure in which indecision and anxiety paralysed governance at every level of the Chinese system. These early failures reflect poorly on China's system of government. Information and time are invaluable assets during a pandemic. If the the virus had been identified earlier, if the lockdown had been declared earlier, it would have given the world more time to react and to prepare for for what lay ahead. This lack of transparency, of course, is baked into the operations of the party state and it contributed to the spread of the virus from Wuhan to the world. Now, On the other hand, once the central government was seized of the threat posed by COVID, it was remarkably effective in containing and controlling the spread of COVID at home in China. The Chinese government took drastic measures. Police welded buildings shut in Wuhan to enforce the lockdown. All 11 million residents of Wuhan were tested for COVID in less than three weeks. China went on to to test more than 9 million residents of Qingdao within five days. Again, let me quote my colleague Richard McGregor on China's pandemic response. Without the need for any messy democratic debate about civil rights or so forth, the government was able virtually overnight to lock down more than 700 million people in residential detention. It was also able to seal provincial, city, city, county and village borders, shut factories while commandeering the entire output of some businesses to supply emergency medical equipment, mobilise military and paramilitary units, build pop-up hospitals, mandate testing of tens of millions of citizens and track the movements of residents through mobile phone apps. Now, this had impressive results, especially compared to the horrors that we're seeing in India for example, where the deadly second wave of COVID is currently engulfing the other Asian superpower, a potential rival of China. India is literally gasping for air. Um, This week, I I had a podcast, Robin, the director's chair, I hope you don't mind my plugging it. And this week on the director's chair, I interviewed Dr. Samir Saran, the head of the Observer Research Foundation, a leading Indian think tank. And he described This crisis, the COVID crisis in India, as one of the toughest battles that the country has fought since its independence. So the virus revealed the Chinese system at its best and at its worst. I I might say the party state doesn't like to be seen at its worst. It likes to be seen at its best. It has reacted very poorly to scrutiny of its COVID record. Australia was the first nation to call for a coronavirus inquiry in April last year. The following month, Australia and the EU co-sponsored a motion at the World Health Assembly to set up an independent inquiry into the origins of and the international response to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, you might think that an inquiry into the origins of a global pandemic so that we can learn lessons and help to prevent a future pandemic, you might think that's a good idea. China did not. China has responded to that call and to other supposed Australian provocations by imposing sanctions on our exports to China, including barley, wine, cotton, timber and coal. Now, I said earlier that China has been very successful at containing the virus, and that has allowed China's economy to rebound quickly. Since it recorded negative GDP growth of 6.8% in the first quarter of 2020, China has subsequently recorded four consecutive quarters of positive GDP growth, including more than 18% in Q1 2021. Economics is the engine of international relations. Wealth enables you to do things, to develop capabilities, to attract friends. And we have seen during the pandemic that China's offerings have proven attractive to many around the world. China has provided considerable medical assistance to other nations. It's the primary uh, funder of of infrastructure finance, although that has decreased, as you would imagine, during the pandemic. China has provided considerable medical assistance to other nations. It's exported over 200 million vaccine doses to other countries. So in some ways, China has strengthened its position during the pandemic. And yet, although it's hard to predict, it does seem to me that when the crisis is finally over, with armies of dead and a battered global economy, it's hard for me to believe that the world will completely forget that China's governing system also allowed the virus to get out of hand initially and to spread to all four corners of the earth. So that's China and the virus. Let me turn to how COVID has affected the West, and let me start with America, the leader of the free world. The United States' initial response to the pandemic was shocking. Donald Trump's America was already self-isolating before the coronavirus pandemic, of course, sloughing off allies and stepping back from the world but the coming of COVID-19 made the United States look seriously unwell, febrile, weak and disoriented. During the pandemic, Mr. Trump flailed around like a fool. You will recall Robin, the bizarre press conference almost exactly one year ago in which the president suggested that injecting disinfectant into the body might be an effective treatment for COVID. We are not, we are accustomed to seeing the United States as the epicenter of global power. Now, America had become the epicenter of global disease and the epicenter of global foolishness. Now, Mr. Trump gets a poor grade for his performance, but the truth is the broader US response to the coronavirus pandemic was also unimpressive, exposing awful frailties in the US system. The reasons for this failure include poor state capacity, excessive individualism, the lack of universal healthcare and the hyperpartisan partisan political culture. America had a bad year, but if history has taught us anything, it has taught us that one should never count the United States out. And there have been many instances where America has recovered from adversity after the depression, Pearl Harbor, the Vietnam War and 9-11. America is good at confounding its critics and surprising even its friends. At the election last November, America course corrected and Americans elected a new president, Joe Biden. I would say the Biden administration is off to a very confident and composed start. President Biden wants to approach the world in the words of National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, from a position of strength. That means two things, effective governance at home and adroit alliance management abroad. Within two months of taking office, President Biden had passed a $1.9 trillion stimulus package through the Congress, and he had achieved his goal of administering 100 million vaccine doses in his first 100 days in office. Nearly half of US adults have now received at least one vaccine dose. And this week, President Biden announced a goal of providing seven out of 10 American adults with at least one vaccine dose by Independence Day, the 4th of July. America's economy has begun bouncing back from the pandemic. America's GDP for the first quarter of 2021 grew by more than 6%. Not Chinese growth, but a good start. So the United States started poorly in its response to COVID, but it's recovering strongly. I guess from a distance, we have seen a similar pattern in the United Kingdom. The once reliable and effective British state floundered in 2020. Prime Minister Boris Johnson initially refused to implement a lockdown, arguing that to do so would cause unnecessary economic damage. That lockdown, of course, was not imposed until, I believe, late March. In September, the government overlooked expert advice and refused to introduce a timely second lockdown. That would have to wait until, I think, November. So the pattern was of one of underestimating the challenge and undercooking the response. This was not what I expected, I have to say, of the British State, normally um, the British state is effective and it gets the mail through. It didn't get the mail through in 2020. By contrast, at least again, seen from here, the vaccine rollout in 2021 has been a huge success. Uh, More than half of the population has received at least one dose. Uh, Along with Israel, the UK has led the Western world in its vaccine rollout. It's been incredible, I must say, to see the speed, the community feeling, and the scale of this exercise. What about my own country, Australia? Overall, Australia has performed well during the pandemic. Being an island has given us an advantage, of course. It has allowed us to pull up the drawbridge. But it wasn't all good fortune. In contrast to Whitehall, Canberra was quick to act. In short order, the government banned visitors from mainland China, introduced a mandatory two-week quarantine for all travellers from overseas and then ultimately closed the borders to all non-residents and non-citizens. Australia declared COVID a national pandemic on on the 27th of February, two weeks before the World Health Organisation did so. More generally, Australian governments, the federal government and also the state governments and territory governments have been very cautious about COVID quick to enforce lockdowns and even erect borders between the states. This has come at some expense to our individual freedoms. It's very difficult for me as an Australian to leave the country, very difficult for Robin as an Australian to come home. Um, our vaccine rollout has also been very slow. And yet, despite this, in our in Lowy Institute polling that we put out this week, uh, 95% of Australians think that the Australia, that the government Australia has handled the pandemic well so the second point I would make is that the, that the West uh, has the, the western response to the pandemic has been variable I think the sort of pub talk that authoritarian states have re, are better at responding to a challenge like uh, the virus is not completely true I think both Authoritarian states and democratic states can do well and they can do poorly. It's more to do with the character of the government, the decision makers, the quality of their decision making than the nature of the system. Um, finally, let me come to the third point that I, I said I would talk about, and that is to try to bring these, these first two points together and talk about the relationship between China and the West in this era, which I'm sure for some time will be influenced if not dominated by COVID. The relationship between China and the West has deteriorated over the past half decade or more. Since the the accession of President Xi Jinping in 2012, China has moved away from its historical strategy of hiding its light and biding its time. Many analysts point to the 19th National Congress of the CCP in 2017 as the moment where China really shifted towards a much more assertive foreign policy. China has been much more forward-leaning in the seas to its east and west, in its relations with its neighbours, and indeed in its relations with distant countries. Even before COVID, China was a dagger drawn with many of its interlocutors. Australia is one example of this, and it provides a good case study, increasingly a case study that that, uh, the world is looking at hard. Just under seven years ago, President Xi Jinping addressed the Australian Parliament to tremendous applause. Since then, the relationship has soured. Analysts differ as to whose fault this is. My own view is that the main reason, not the only reason, but the main reason why Australia's relationship with China has changed is that China has changed. Its foreign policies have hardened. The constraints that the central government has imposed on people within China have tightened. The government's willingness to accept criticism has completely disappeared. Australia has undertaken a number of steps in this period to protect our sovereignty, including banning Huawei, and other high-risk vendors from participating in our 5G rollout and introducing new foreign interference laws. For the Chinese, Australia's call for an international inquiry in April last year was just the latest in a string of provocations. Looked at it from Sydney. These were mainly reactions to overbearing actions on China's part. Now, over the course of the pandemic, I've discerned two important developments in the relations between the West and China. First, there is now an increased willingness by democratic nations to push back against China, whether it's on sovereignty issues or human rights issues or other questions. This trend is uneven, but it's real. You see it in formal declarations by parliaments and assemblies and governments that China's actions In Xinjiang, towards the Uyghurs, for example, constitute genocide. You see it in the British government, offering a path to British citizenship to Hong Kongers. You see it in in increasing numbers of Western countries, locking Chinese vendors out of their 5G networks. Secondly, there's been a further strengthening of ties between like-minded countries. We see much more coordination between these nations. You see it at the government-to-government level. You see it between national institutions and parliaments. You see it even between think tanks. Just this week, uh, there was the G7 plus three foreign ministers meeting in, in London, which Australia's foreign minister attended. We've seen the Five Eyes intelligence grouping of the UK, the United States, Canada, New Zealand and Australia start to assume a different character and start to release statements on um, policy issues, including the national security law in Hong Kong. Um, Very soon, the Biden administration is set to host a summit of democracies with like-minded nations. I certainly detect much more interest from European governments and think tanks in in Australia and in the, the case of Australia's relations with China. Just anecdotally, I have a lot more think-tank directors reaching out to me and asking questions about how, we, how Australia has responded to this challenge. We've seen the creation of an inter-parliamentary alliance on China, comprising more than 100 parliamentarians from 20 democratic countries. You're also seeing closer cooperation between Asian democracies. For example, Australia has substantially thickened its relations with both Japan and India, Uh, Prime Minister Morrison of Australia was the first um, foreign head of government to uh, visit Tokyo to meet the new Japanese Prime Minister, Prime Minister Suga, at the end of last year. And to date, I think he's been the only head of government to visit Japan because of the pandemic. Similarly, you see uh, Morrison and and Mr. Morrison and Prime Minister Modi of India um, working very hard on that relationship. And the Indian foreign minister... Dr. Shankar told me last year that, that of all the bilateral relationships of which he has carriage, he's most satisfied with the strengthening of the bilateral relationship between India and Australia. We saw a couple of months ago, the first leaders meeting of the Quad countries, the big four um, Indo-Pacific democracies, um, the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. Um, just a few years ago, it would have been unthinkable for those four leaders to meet for fear of provoking China. Now, they're very happy to meet. They they had a very ambitious agenda out of the first um, Quad leaders meeting uh, that was run virtually. And uh, and they've all said they look forward to an in-person leaders meeting later this year if that can be achieved. So again, I've seen these two developments an increased willingness on behalf of Western countries to push back against China, and secondly, a, 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 a thickening, a strengthening of the ties between Western countries, especially in relation to China. Now, I think for the most part, these developments are positive. China's actions deserve reactions. Competition is appropriate. We shouldn't allow our intertwined economies to slide from the present uneasy competition into confrontation, I should say. I do wanna state that, Robin. We should try to manage and maintain the competition between the West and China. In particular, it would be good if the United States and China were able to find a mode of coexisting in which each can achieve its objectives while also allowing other Asian countries to exercise their prerogatives. But it's not just about the United States and China. The other countries in the region also deserve our own space. None of us wants to live in another country's shadow. We all have the right to make our own way. So we don't want the competition to slide into confrontation. But make no mistake, we are in a competition, a competition of systems. And you can't compete effectively unless you believe in yourself. And so countries like the UK and Australia need to show confidence in our own systems, in our own democracies. I've tried to argue today that the pandemic hasn't shown that authoritarian states are effective and democracies are ineffective or vice versa. It's shown that all states are vulnerable to this kind of challenge, but equally all kinds of states can be resilient and effective. And we need to work to make our system and our democracies re- resilient effective. Now, one of the great things about democracies is that they have an inbuilt mechanism for correcting costs. We saw that in the United States last November. Course correction is a much harder trick for an authoritarian state to pull off. It's very hard for the Chinese Communist Party to admit error because it doesn't have the pressure valve of a free and democratic election leading to a change of government. Changing government is not in the CCP playbook. So I prefer our system and we should believe in our own system. We should work to improve it. We should be self-critical where self-criticism is justified. We should look after our most vulnerable people. We should demand effective governance from our governments on COVID and other issues. And we should hold them to account when they don't provide effective governance. We should also provide solidarity, show solidarity with countries that are in crisis. The deadly second wave in India shows that none of us will be safe from COVID until we are all safe. We should provide vaccines and medical supplies to struggling countries. We should look at waiving the the IP relating to around surrounding vaccines as a way of making them more accessible. And I see the Biden administration this week has has declared in principle for in principle support for that. We should send foreign aid to countries that are in crisis. In that context, I've been disappointed to see the reductions in Australia's overall foreign aid program over the past decade. And equally, I was disappointed to see the United Kingdom decide uh, at the end of last year, I think it was, to reduce its foreign aid spending, providing aid to Developing countries and the countries in crisis is the right thing to do. It's also the smart thing to do. Doing good helps us to do well. If democratic countries are to make a case to the rest of the world about the strengths of our system, we should start by putting our money where our mouth is. So, Robin, I, I see that I'm out of time. Let me just conclude by in this way. COVID reveals... COVID sees through what nations say about themselves and it reveals what they really are. The virus has revealed that both China and the West have flaws as well as strengths. We are in a period of increased competition between China and Western countries and that competition will only get fiercer in coming years. I hope it remains competition and doesn't slide into confrontation. To acquit ourselves well in that competition, we should first believe in ourselves, believe in our democracy, and also seek to practice the values of liberalism and solidarity. And perhaps if Ralph Miliband and I were to agree on one thing, it would be the importance of solidarity. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much Michael. I'll just ask start by asking you a question myself to follow up on what you were saying. I mean your comments at the beginning talked about strengths and weaknesses and you, you emphasized the the ease with which China was able to deal with the crisis because of its ability to leave questions of human rights aside. And the question is really to think about what the impact of that is on the appeal of rights based language more generally in foreign affairs. I mean, it's after all the case, not just that China was able to do that, but also that the historically liberal countries that have been more successful, the Australians and the New Zealand's, have been successful in the face of their commitments to rights. I mean, as, as you've just set out, it's about restricting movement, not letting people come in and so on. So. Isn't the language of rights in a bit of trouble, given these developments, both in authoritarian and in more democratic societies? And what do you think that means for the deployment of that language and its effectiveness in the coming period?
1: Well, thank you. Um, look, I think you're 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 definitely right that um, that governments around the world of both democratic and authoritarian character have limited the rights of their citizens to different degrees in order to try to keep them safe. And I mentioned earlier the Australian case um, where, uh, for example, um, we, we currently have a pause on uh, travel from India to Australia. And um, it's impossible really, well, it is impossible for Australian citizens and residents to return home. Um, and in an example, I think of overreach. At the weekend, the Australian government declared that um, that any anyone trying to circumvent that ban would face criminal penalties. That that overreach has been widely criticised, and the government has stepped back from that and said it would be very unlikely that it would enforce those those um, those violations. So. But if you you think about, so so that's one point. And that raises all sorts of very important and interesting questions about how far it's appropriate to limit the rights of individuals in order to provide for their safety. Um, But I guess I would, I think there's a very clear line between that kind of um, balance that's been struck in democratic countries and the balance that was struck in China, which was of a completely different nature. And I guess where i take issue with your question or perhaps with the implication behind the question is that just because, um, because Western countries are not fully protecting the rights of their citizens, it somehow means we are not entitled or it's not efficacious to invoke human rights in relation to non-democratic societies, and sometimes I think um, I think self-criticism is very important. And it's uh, I saw Jake Sullivan in his interaction with the Chinese officials at Anchorage say that self-criticism and is the secret source in America, and I think that applies to Britain and Australia too. I think self-criticism is is important and welcome, but but does that mean that we shouldn't? speak out. Because we struggle with these issues, we shouldn't speak out against much graver injustices overseas. I don't think it does. And equally, I would take issue with the realists in international relations who say Western countries should be silent, for example, about human rights abuses in China, because we should focus only on interests, whether they be national security interests or economic interests. I think to go back to the theme in one of the themes in my remarks, if we believe in ourselves and if we really believe in our own values, then we have no choice but to speak up on behalf of um, the Uyghurs, for example, in China or other groups within China that are being oppressed. So I think that, I think that although human rights now has to find itself um, to quote a uh, uh, an Australian human rights um, and international relations scholar from some decades ago, human rights has to find itself in the empire of circumstance. In other words, human rights rhetoric or human rights language, um, human rights is one of the issues which which Western countries need to uh, raise with China. Only one one of a number of important issues I think it has to be one of the issues. I think we have to stick to our guns on that because, um, because that's really at the core of our values as, as Western countries.
0: Great, thanks very much. Um, I'm going to take a question now from the audience. It's from Ewan Grant in London, a former intelligence analyst who, who says, Russia has tentatively su- suggested cooperation with Western countries on vaccines. By sharing doses of Sputnik, for example, uh, what what has China done? Has it made similar offers, and what are the implications of that?
1: Well, China has um, China has certainly. I mean, where we see China's actions is in the developing world, um, and in the countries around Australia, for example, we see China. Um, you know, aid to the Pacific, for example, Australia is, is the largest country in the South Pacific region. Aid to the Pacific from China has massively increased in recent years. Um, aid from Australia and New Zealand, I might say, uh, remains still the largest, Australian New Zealand aid remains the largest portion of total aid to the Pacific, but aid to China has significantly increased. And similarly, we are seeing um, China uh, roll out vaccines to countries in our region. And I think that's a good thing. Um, And uh, I think we should get as many vaccines into the arms of people in Timor-Leste or Papua New Guinea or Fiji or wherever. But um, my point, I guess, is that democratic um, countries need to be in that competition as well. Um, because uh, that competition for geopolitical influence and for hearts and minds is underway right now. Um, You know, it was interesting uh, that the United States was quite slow off the mark in terms of distributing vaccines abroad. And a lot of the critics, even this year of the Biden administration, I've beat some praise on the Biden administration, but let me criticise them as well, A lot of critics said quite rightly that it was slow to distribute excess vaccines. Indians were quick to criticise the United States for being very slow to distribute medical supplies um, as well as vaccines to India. And many people said or some people said that that the United States was continuing with the America First um, uh, approach now, in, in some ways, that's understandable because, of course, all governments look after their own people first. But but I think we do have to lift our eyes above the parapet. We have to recognise that this too shall pass. COVID at some point will pass. China's not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. And Russia's not going anywhere. And so we need to continue to show solidarity, to provide support to countries in crisis, um, Australia needs to do that to really step up in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, and the same for other Western countries, so that we can, um, so that we can, uh, you know, so that we can compete effectively.
0: Thanks. So I have another question here from Mohammed Hassan, an LSE alumni. Um, Mohammed asks. Does the West and the US in particular need an alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative to dislodge relationships China is developing with countries in Asia, besides Pakistan in particular, Africa, and the question mentions Zambia and Nigeria and in Latin America?
1: That would be great. I mean, be, there's a couple of areas where it would be terrific if the West could come up with its own approach Um Infrastructure finance is definitely one of them, and there have been a few kind of milk toast attempts um, on behalf of the Americans and the Japanese and the Australians and others. Um, but it's hard for us to compete. You know, it's a bit like it's a bit like um, the 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 way that the, the CCP can point the state towards lockdown, and it's just very effective in mobilizing resources in that fashion um and similarly um development finance what we have thrown at that problem has been insufficient another example um is 5g technology i mean it's it you know one of the reasons that that huawei uh, that that huawei that, that countries uh that, that some countries for example are allowing huawei to develop their their 5G networks is that Huawei has a pretty good product that it provides at a good price point. And Western um, companies have been slow to develop that sort of technology. Um, It's striking, for example, that that US companies have not been more effective given the incredible innovation in um, the United States and Silicon Valley and the innovativeness of the US economy. It's amazing that US companies haven't can't provide that technology. So, so to answer your question, to answer the, the viewers question, Muhammad's question, um, yeah, I think, I think we, we all need to think about how can we step up in different ways? How, what are the gaps in our offering, whether it's in development assistance or infrastructure finance or critical technologies? And how can we, um, how can we develop more effectively in order to more effectively compete?
0: Thanks. So I have another question here from John who asks, do you believe the turn in relations between China and the West was inevitable? Was it just a question of when?
1: That's a very good question. Um, And of course, international relations scholars and historians have known for a long time that that conflict between um, status quo states and rising states, if not inevitable, is uh, very common. And there've been academic um, studies at Harvard and elsewhere that have that have um, looked at the many instances where that has taken place. And actually the relationship between the United States and the UK and the, the sort of the passing of the baton of international leadership around the time um, that you mentioned in, my introdu- in your introduction of me, Robin, uh, around the time of the second world war, that's a very unusual situation in world history where you had a, a, a status quo power being overtaken by a rising power, but it was done peacefully and, and with comedy. So, so competition is inevitable. The question, I guess, is whether competition is inevitable. Let me put a caveat on that. Um, but I would also say, as someone who believes in human agency and human affairs, that um The nature of that competition was not inevitable. Um, If, I mean, it was very striking how much Chinese external behavior changed with the, the, uh, when Xi Jinping assumed the presidency, very striking. Um, And so, so yes, I think competition would have been inevitable. At some point, China would have would have sought to take on the prerogatives of the great power it was becoming but whether they would have done it in such a hard-edged way as they have is is not clear to me I, I do think the individual choices of individual leaders matter in international relations the third point I'd make is that if competition was inevitable I don't think conflict is inevitable and I think conflict can be avoided and hopefully it will be and that's That's what I was trying to get at in my lecture when I said that we all need to manage this competition. Um, The men in jong need to imagine it. The men and women in in democratic capitals need to manage it. We need to provide some guardrails so that it doesn't get out of hand. I think that is important because uh, a conflict, um, you know, there have been lots of conflicts between rising and falling powers, um, but uh, a conflict between nuclear-armed powers um, where nationalism is a a potent force, um, this is very dangerous indeed. So maybe competition is inevitable. The kind of competition depends on decisions and individuals and whether we can keep it at the level of competition and not, not descend into conflict. That is not inevitable, and I
0: hope we don't go in that direction. Okay, thanks very much. So, next question comes from Giles Strawn, who's a businessman in the UAE, who asks Is the West prepared for the implications of winning? Um, and goes on to say Will China end up going the same way as Russia?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I don't think that winning, uh, it depends what you mean by winning. Um, I don't, another way of putting Jack's question, John's question, I'm sorry, John's question um, is to say, should we worry about a weak China um, as well as a, a strong China? Uh, I think that I think that that's a legitimate concern. Um, Because uh, the idea of a a China in domestic turmoil, um, a country of of, uh, so many people spread across such a a large landmass, that would be very dangerous, extremely dangerous and disruptive. Um, But I don't think... The West wants that, and I don't think the West is seeking that. I don't think any Western leader would define that as victory or winning. I also think it's much less likely in the case of China than it is in the case of Russia. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, but, but uh, you know, but, but economics uh, is at the heart of it, and China is an enormously strong economy, much stronger than the Russian economy was It's also much more interconnected, of course, with the international economy. And that's one reason why we have to be a little bit careful about drawing the parallels between the Cold War and um, and our current period too too tightly. Uh, The Russian economy was was almost thematically sealed, or at least it was sealed off in many ways from Western economies. The the relationships were, were not... Uh, when the trading relationships were very minimal um, in not the case, the, the, the trade and investment links, the, the supply chains are, are deeply interconnected. And so hopefully, to come back to John's question, hopefully that will, those, those, those interconnections will provide a kind of a safety net, hopefully, that keeps us back from the brink.
0: Thanks. So, the next question is Tim Crow, an alumnus from the ANU, in, uh, who's writing from Canberra, and asks, should countries in the world consider decoupling their economic issues with China as a way of avoiding and reducing the ability of China to exert economic coercion?
1: Well, uh... I think that is happening to some extent. I think decoupling is a is a strong and extreme term, probably, but um, certainly um, companies around Australia and around the West are looking to diversify, and I think that's healthy. I think to I think we were all guilty, probably, of putting too many of our eggs in one basket, and that involved accepting a lot of risk. Um, so I think diversification is good. I think, you know, all things in moderation. Um, I think decu- trying to decouple so that we are really kind of parallel worlds, I think that contains within it a lot of um, risk as well. Um, one thing I would say is that that economic... In Australia's case, the economic... Um, I mean, we have certainly been the target of attempted economic coercion from China. I don't think anyone can really disagree with that. Uh, even today, China um, formally uh, dissolved a strategic and economic strategic dialogue between Australia and China that involved, fi- you know, at the finance minister level. It had been sort of um, uh, in hiatus, but they sort of formally dissolved it. But... But I noticed some, some Australian analysts making the point that the reason they've gone down that sort of unusual route is that they pulled the trigger on the trade sanctions last year and actually the effect on Australia overall, the net effect was was minimal. I mean, certainly in some sectors, uh, the, the effect was great and in certain, certainly in relation to some companies, they've been devastated. But, but overall... Um, uh, exporters were able to find other markets. Now, um, to some extent, you know, to, to a large extent where um, that, that's assisted by the fact that China still needs Australian iron ore, which is which is our sort of trump card, but we found other exporters for other goods that, that where they wish to take fewer Australian imports. So economic coercion is real and the attempt certainly has been made. To date, Australia has been more resilient than many people, including many Australians ex- many Australians expected. And so that's perhaps a, a positive note that rather than sort of decouple, um, intelligent diversification can provide quite a bit of protection from attempted economic coercion.
0: Great. So the next question is from Yao Kuan, um, a law student uh, from China, who asks, does COVID-19 limit the reaction of Western countries to the enacting of the national security law and the amending of the basic law in Hong Kong?
1: I don't think so. I mean, that's not what we've seen. Um, I mentioned before we've seen... uh, in fact, um, more coordination um, uh, among uh, Western countries on those questions, um, and speaking out pretty clearly. Ultimately, it's 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 hard operationally for Western countries to do anything about it. But I don't I don't think COVID affects that, and I don't think um, I don't think that uh, that we've seen. Um, a reluctance to speak out on those issues. In fact, I would say that the kind of hard-edged behaviour that that China has exhibited towards Australia, for example, during COVID, and, and it seems that that was really ratcheted up after Australia called for an international inquiry into, into COVID, has sort of compounded the, the, the general sense that a lot of the world has had that this is a really a problem for us, that that there are just lots of fronts on which um, China is being very, very tough. You know, here they are applying sanctions to uh, Australia for making a quite reasonable argument. There they are stepping back from um, principles to which they agreed in relation to Hong Kong. Um, here they are criticizing something else. So I think. I'm always reluctant to tell a country, to tell any country, let alone a a very proud, great country like China, where its interests lie. But my own view is that China and Xi Jinping wasted an historic opportunity in the last year. I mean, how often um, does a country like China face off against a president as foolish as Donald Trump? How often do you see a country as powerful and effective usually as the United States fail as, as clearly as it did in, in responding to COVID within the United States last year? If China had, um, had uh, been a little less edgy and a little less tough and, and uh, oversensitive and, and quick to respond, in an angry fashion to anyone that criticized it, if it had really positioned itself as Xi Jinping tried to a few years ago uh, at his speech in Davos, as the, the country that supports globalization, the country that supports other countries, that might have it might have tipped the balance actually in terms of global perceptions. But instead it went the other way, and perhaps it saw weakness and thought it could it could take advantage of that um, by sort of muscling up and by vigorously rejecting any criticism and seeking to punish anyone who did so. So I think actually, in many ways, uh, some of these approaches that China has are compounding the problem that China has, I think it has, I think it did miss a real opportunity during the Trump administration to surpass the United States in terms of soft power. And I think it's now eating in and undermining its own soft power by by, by throwing its weight around in the way that it is.
0: Thanks. I might just, um, we're getting close to the end, I might just pick up on some of those points you were making and and ask one further last question that ties to something you said towards the end of your talk, when you said it was important that um, democratic countries have confidence in their own democracy. And and I just want you to reflect on that a little bit further and how it bears on international relations and the audience for countries who are maybe neither China nor the West. Um, I mean, we know from you know, political science, that there's been a growth in discontent with democracy across a range of democracies over a period of decades. And now, if you like, in the United States, the oldest and most sort of prominent of these, we can see that 40% of the population don't accept the outcome of an election. Now, th- this is a very fundamental problem with confidence in democracy in a very important country, but it's not just a problem in that country. It's a problem you can track in opinion surveys in various other countries. So, uh, you know, what what is the implication of this really? I mean, is there a longer term lack of confidence emerging? And how does this have a bearing on the questions you've been talking about?
1: Very good questions. Um... I think we have to nurture and protect our our own democracy. Um, I think we need to nurture it by, you know, by addressing that discontent. Um, I think the United States is a bit of an outlier. I think that uh, I take your point that that you can track this. Indeed, in Australia, Lowy Institute polling showed a few years ago that younger Australians uh, were not that impressed by democracy. But interestingly, that number has declined over the last couple of years, interestingly and thankfully. Um, I think the United States is a special case. It's such a big country. The extremes are so wide. And Donald Trump, to get back to the earlier theme about the role of individuals, I mean, Donald Trump um, did violence to American democracy, the American system. I mean, his followers did violence to the Capitol. He, he he did did certainly temporary i hope not permanent damage, violence to the Republican party the grand old party um, so i think we need to nurture our own democracy we need to we need to work out what is the root cause of that discontent uh, we need to address those causes but we also need to speak up for democracy it's somehow sometimes in democracies it. We're very quick, as I mentioned earlier, to criticise ourselves. And and that's good. And that's the secret sauce that Jake Sullivan talked about. But but I don't like it when we we lose confidence in our democracy. Uh, I don't like it when we exaggerate the problems that we face. Um, I don't think we should do that. And I think we we should, those of us who have something of a voice should make the point that that our system, we believe, is superior to other systems. The second thing I said we should do, Robin, is protect our democracy. That's a much harder question, um, but it's a more operational question. Oh, sorry, it's it's easier in a way, but it's harder in a way. And what I mean by that is that we have seen through the Russian intervention in the in the US election and in other elections, but also um, we've seen it in very reputable accounts of Chinese interference in a democracy, whether it's in Australia or in other democratic countries, this is a real thing we have to protect against as well. And that means taking it seriously, um, passing the kind of legislation that Australia passed that requires people who are acting on behalf of foreign governments to register so that we can bring sunlight and transparency to, um, to our political system, because I think those, that's the best, that's the best cure. So, I don't under, underrate or underestimate the scale of the problem you, you suggest. I think it's particularly important in the United States, and the United States is particularly important to the rest of us because what happens in the cockpit of global democracy affects us all. And so I'm willing on um, the Biden administration not only to succeed but to win over um, its opponents uh, at least to a point where they accept that the election was legitimate, the election result was the, the election was fair, the result was legitimate, and that at least they accept that you have a government of goodwill that is trying its best on behalf of its people.
0: Well, Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for, for your insightful observations. I, I think it was particularly striking when you said towards the end that... Um, the relationship that you've been discussing um, in a way foreshadows a number of problems that are unfolding in the world. And you went on to point out that COVID has been a, a kind of an X-ray in a way that reveals things, enables you to see through to some of the characteristics that have been fundamental. So thank you very much again, and um, I hope everyone can join me remotely in thanking our speaker, Dr Michael
1: footlove